0: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion.
1: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, hometown of actress Jillian Anderson, who played one of the worst skeptics in television history, Dana Scully of the X-Files. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio 1680 AM WPRR Ada Grand Rapids 95.3 FM W237 CZ Hudsonville and 88.3 FM WPJC in Pontiac Illinois and as always streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher with me in the studio my fellow doubtcaster Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey everybody how you doing? Uh, teen pop sensation Justin Schieber and Dr. Professor Luke Galen are off this week, but uh, they'll be back. Don't worry. Uh, coming up on today's show, we've got some polyatheism, a stranger than fiction not to be missed, and Vicki Garrison, a survivor of the quiverful movement. Uh, but to start us off, some of our listeners out there may be aware of the fact that um, there's stuff going on in Syria. Huh? and at a time like this, it's really difficult to know what to do. So perhaps maybe the best answer is to turn to the good book and see what it has to say about Syria. Probably not much for guidance,
0: but here, let's skim through it a bit and see if we can find anything. But to anything. be fair,
1: it was written near Syria. Yeah, that's so, true. You Very know? close in proximity. Yep, so yep.
0: geographically, they're doing pretty solid. Right. Hmm, hmm. Okay, here's something. Isaiah chapter 17. See, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. Her towns will be destroyed forever.
1: That sounds kind of like what we're looking at sure, right now. <laughs> sure, Damascus in Syria. Uh, we, we've. Hey, I, I don't think it's a heap of ruins just yet. Not yet. But we could get there, yeah. Uh, but they okay. certainly
0: have tested rocks and found traces of chemical weapons and all that. Yeah. So it's not looking good. And this
1: is, of course, the first time that's happened in Syria, right? right so right, that right. has to be yeah. what they're referring Syria's, to in,
0: in Isaiah. Damascus would have never have made the Hebrews' shit list for any previous right. reason. Yes, right. of course. There's a lot of important news about Syria. Maybe some of the less important news is the way that Christian fundamentalists around the country are responding to this. Mm. Uh, Many are searching their Bibles, looking for prophecies of the end times and of course have stumbled upon Isaiah chapter 17 with this prophecy that Damascus will be completely annihilated. Never mind the fact that it also includes Moab, Babylon, Egypt, Tyre, and Mm -hmm. a number of places other than Syria.
1: To be fair, Babylon is in
0: Iraq, so that may have already happened. Yeah, they were predicting the end days back during that conflict Mm -hmm. as well. Some things never change and this hasn't either. A number of websites have popped up uh, claiming – that Isaiah 17 is being fulfilled before our eyes in this day. One claiming that, quote, the long prophesied end of days is here. It's, it's nice to hear that this occasionally does make the media. I, I do like the fact that the fringe elements of Christian fundamentalism aren't always, aren't always hidden from our view that mm-hmm. we can, we can witness their crazy mm-hmm. in a public forum because I think it helps make people understand where these folks are coming from sure. and where, why we need not to listen to them. And, uh, time.com, uh, covered this in an article. Some evangelicals see biblical prophecy in Syrian crises. Now, the religious blogosphere is lighting up right now, objecting to the evangelicals part. Mm. Uh, many evangelicals don't want themselves associated with, you know, your run of the mill fundamentalists. But I think certainly we can understand that these people are indeed out there. They're a larger mm. voice than many think. And uh, some have felt the need to speak up and question their interpretation of the scriptures.
1: Thank goodness for that. For these fundamentalists, uh, for these evangelists, uh, whichever term they least prefer, this is a good thing, right? The fact that trouble is brewing in Syria is a sign that a, the Bible is true, B, the end times are coming. So this is something much like, you know, um, every time there's trouble in Israel, hooray, the end times are coming. Yeah, it's this is this is good news. They're celebrating this as opposed to saying beware, this is going to be trouble. Yeah, yeah. As Sam Harris said, if a nuke were to drop on
0: Jerusalem tomorrow, there'd Mm -hmm. be a number of Americans who would see a silver lining in the mushroom cloud. Right. Walter Brueggemann, a uh, professor of uh, a Columbia Theological Seminary, was questioned by Time on this, saying, "You know, is is there anything behind these interpretations?" I love how these reporters even. Try to give even it bother a shred of credibility, <laughs> and he responded with what I found what I felt was a very sensible answer. He said, uh, "You cannot read the Bible this way. It's an ancient poem about an ancient context. If we're going to contemporize it with such an easy connection." then we have to learn to read the text against the United States as well Hmm. because the United Hmm. States now plays the role of Babylon and all those ancient superpowers. We have to tread very gently about making such silly connections, and he's absolutely right. But I couldn't help to think that there would be any number of people out there who would be willing to take him up on that and indeed (laughs) would see the United States as this great Babylon. Sure that needs to be resisted.
1: That sounds like a Fred Phelps kind of idea.
0: It would be nice to just not even pay attention to these folks, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly on this show, although we do have our laughs from time to time, we try to we try to pay attention to those stories that might actually have some impact. You know, this stuff really does. Mm-hmm. We can't dismiss the fundamentalists in our midst. They lobby politicians on Washington.
1: In, and And in, in have Washington. the ear of many of them, oftentimes the president himself, yeah, they serve in high ranking positions
0: mm-hmm. in our in our military. Unfortunately, you know, the end times lobby, is active. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we've discussed in our God Thinks Like You segments in the past, fundamentalism and authoritarianism is strongly correlated with uh, with some pretty despicable views when it comes to use of nuclear weapons, the acceptability of war, Mm -hmm. and especially when it comes to these foreign policy issues in the Middle East … Uh, And so, again, I'd like to reaffirm it's important that media outlets pay attention to these – And point out the crazy. And try to counter them. Yes, Yes, try to counter them. Uh, And uh, the article goes on to talk about the context of this original passage, which is uh, the the Israelites were being invaded by the Assyrian army. They were pronouncing curses on every nation in the region. Uh, Perhaps the fact that Damascus wasn't destroyed, that it wasn't obliterated Mm -hmm. off the uh, face of the earth – uh, might be a uh, good sign that these these prophecies weren't good prophecies to begin with. Right, right. Uh, There's
1: been, been what? Over 2,000 years' time for that to have happened and right. it hasn't happened yet. So. But as fundamentalist logic goes, if it hasn't been fulfilled yet,
0: we beg the question and assume mm-hmm. it must be fulfilled in the future. And it's not surprising then that some are eagerly reading the headlines looking right. for some shred of evidence that these ancient prophecies might come true.
1: So that's what's going on uh, elsewhere in the world. Now back here at home, here's an example of um, a Catholic leader who's putting women in their place.
0: We should make absolutely clear that uh, the gentleman we're discussing, Rylan Allman, mm-hmm. is not himself a Catholic priest. He's no. not in any sort of official leadership role in the Catholic Church. He's just a concerned Catholic out there. Expounding upon Catholic doctrines and yeah. encouraging like-minded believers to follow what he feels is good spiritual advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Elman uh, runs a video series called "Fix the Family," in which they have. So <laughs> it's like you're going to neuter them. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's one policy he probably doesn't embrace. No, not. <laughs> any contraception of any kind, <laughs> right? Given Catholic views on family planning. Mm -hmm. But his latest series, Dads Only, is full of – I'm listening. Wonderful, in scare quotes, Uh advice as to how to raise your good Catholic daughter. Hmm. The latest in his series, a lot of it focuses on his case for why women should not go to college – yeah. He begins with saying, "My my personal impression is that the day to day grind of a job is below the dignity of women. In a oh. way, it's like being a hired hand, the result of the fall and uh, and a penalty for original sin. So, so you see." It's it's really that he just has so much respect for the dignity of women, right? That right. he doesn't think they should have to go through the daily grind of a career. Because
1: that was Adam's punishment in Genesis is that he should have to toil and work to put bread on the table. So that's that's something a man has to do. That's beneath the dignity right. of a woman to have to be subjected to that. And that's what really what it comes down to sure. is this uh, this idea that
0: of of course uh, we're somehow separate but equal before God. Uh, God, we might be. One in Christ, but God has destined different roles for men and women. Of course, no attention is paid to the patriarchal context in which these texts were written. Oh, no, right? No. This has to be from the mouth of God, and and not just some sort of relic of a bygone age. Uh, but nevertheless, he will edify us further with some of more of his insights as to uh, the roles of men and women. Here's the thing this this is what gets me. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk out there about how feminism is somehow man-hating by its right, very nature. Right. It goes far beyond opposing patriarchy towards some sort of hatred or belittling of men in hmm. general. I'm sure you can find a few out there who fit that bill, but uh, you know the vast majority of feminists… That, that's not the face of feminism. No, it's that not. Is, yeah. … and the vast majority of feminism view patriarchy as a negative for males too. It's destructive yeah. to men, not just women. Mm-hmm. What's funny to me is to see these religious rationales for patriarchy framed in a way that's man-hating itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, right. I find religious anti-feminists, I, I find them their texts to be more belittling of men than what I read from a lot of feminists. Right. So basically his case in this video is rooted in the idea that men simply can't control themselves. That obviously. He begins with saying, you know, women kind of he reads a quote from some Catholic bishop hmm. to the effect of if you want to see if you want a kind of moral barometer of a society, look at its young women. Um,
1: <laughs> Miley I mean, Cyrus for example would be a good <laughs> good way to get the moral compass of our society. Right. Right? Uh Oh, God. Uh, my, my critiques of Miley Cyrus
0: are not at all moral critiques, merely no. aesthetic ones. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Let's throw Robin Thicke under the bus for for the VMA performance. That, that might get more into the moral <laughs>
0: than the aesthetic realm for me. But nevertheless, yeah, yeah, yeah. if they want to torque and grind, it doesn't bother me. Doesn't bother me. Surely bothers a lot of Catholics out there. And, uh, I don't want to listen to the music, but it
1: doesn't bother me. It can be there. <laughs> uh,
0: here, here's what he says. Um, This is how flaky men are. Mm -hmm. Men will allow for pretty much anything that a woman will, he says. It's a male weakness and a female power. Very few men can restrain themselves and control themselves with a woman, but most are going to respect a woman who's going Mm -hmm. to respect herself. Again, kind of couched in this elevating women, right? Mm -hmm. Criticizing men. Uh, so what this means is that fathers need to uh, pay special attention to the moral development of their daughters mm. because they're going to set the kind of moral because climate they control, of control society. Yeah,
1: because if, if a girl wants to be promiscuous, then she's going to make the, the men around her promiscuous as well. This is his key case against women seeking a college education. Mm.
0: He claims not to have any problem with education itself. And in fact, although he's never gotten yeah. one. <laughs> right. And he, and he quickly, you know, points out you know, women just don't need a college education. Why? Quote, because today anyone can learn anything they want with the vast library system across the country and with easy access of the internet. So, so they can just educate themselves. Saying
1: men don't need to go to college either?
0: Uh, interesting. Yeah. Wouldn't it be the same thing for them? Why, why think. the double standard? Yeah. He goes on to say though this is why women must be protected by college it, it all boils down to sex. Mm-hmm. They're going to get there. They're going to be around friends mm-hmm. that might be of a different moral upbringing mm-hmm. than them. And uh and eventually, right, uh, as all uh, college age girls do, they're just they're going to drop their panties and just end up, you know, having right. lurid sex with the nearest boy, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you know, adds this quote It's no small matter we're dealing with here. Is a degree worth the loss of your daughter's purity, her dignity,
1: and her soul? Wow. Now, to be clear, this guy um, wrote this in the 1800s, right? This is Victorian-era thought no, 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 this was like last week. Oh, this is actually <laughs> happening now. Yeah. Oh. But this,
0: this is, this okay. is even like you alluded to, right? Why do men still get to go to college, yeah. right? If, if this is education is fine and right. the temptations are sexual in nature, mm-hmm. uh, should this apply equally to men? And of course it betrays, right, his deeper patriarchy here. Mm-hmm. One more quote. I have to, I have to end, read this before we conclude because <laughs> it's such a gem. Here's what he really thinks is going to happen if – from women entering the workforce. Basically, it's going to enable lazy couch potato men. <laughs> so <laughs> let, let me read this, which actually – it's hard for me not to see a shred of – I'm confession here. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me not to see a shred of truth. I just don't necessarily view this as a bad thing. But, <laughs> right. uh, I, I certainly know couples where this, this description yeah. fits. Uh-huh. What normally happens with this setup? is that those lazy men who are looking for another mother figure in a wife are very attracted to these responsible, organized, smart women who have it all together with a steady-paying job and with benefits. Mm -hmm. So if he wants to go to work, he can. But if not, he can always fall back on her income. Or if he doesn't want to have to answer anyone, he could start his own business and it doesn't matter if it fails or succeeds or makes enough income because she's there to help. The bottom line is he is only supplementing her income, but he's supposed to be the provider. These are very strong stresses on families that I observe to be consistently – to consistently repeat themselves over and over. What she did that was looked upon to be the responsible thing just in case ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy because of this type of man she ended up marrying. So I mean this is weird. He seems to be even against – to income households. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The case against women's employment is – Is not that they're not fit for the workplace. Perfectly fine. It's that they're so damn good and so damn responsible. That men are going to become lazy. That it's the women's fault that the men end up flaking out and pissing away their existence sitting on the couch at home. But
1: there's, again, that double standard. There's no problem if a man is the the breadwinner of the family and the woman then falls back, relies on his income – tries to start a business and whether it works or not, it doesn't matter because she can fall back on his income. That's as it should be. Right? Yeah. Right. It's only when the woman does that when we get that that role reversal that it's a problem. You know, why why wouldn't these women
0: just kick these uh freeloading men off the couch and make them get a job too? Mm-hmm. He's got an answer to that too. Oh no. So once she becomes sexually active with him, oh, she God. releases hormones that mask his faults and she remains in a dreamy state about him, and thereby less tempted to be critical of him. What? My God! I wish that described my marriage. Yeah,
1: no <laughs> kidding. <laughs> what? My what? God! Who are
0: these families that he's observed uh, to, to watch this happen? I didn't.
1: I didn't realize my my sexual powers were so. Powerful yeah, but yeah. uh I can delude my wife simply yeah. by I, having sex with apparently her. Apparently
0: a little bit of oxytocin is just gonna make her look <laughs> the other way no matter what, right? Yeah, God, yeah, if only it worked that way. And this is not the stranger than fiction for, uh, for yeah, the episode. Let's be, right? uh let's
1: point that out.
0: Despite wow. the framing, the message is clear. This is you know, this is patriarchy in slightly new packaging. Mm-hmm. And it's a phenomena that extends way past Catholics, of course. (laughs) Uh, We see this all over the Protestant world. And in fact, that's where we're going with our interview today. First, we're going to hear a lecture from Vicki Garrison. Uh, Vicki Garrison is the author of the Quivering No Longer blog. She's a survivor of the Quiverful movement. We talked about the Quiverful movement way back in episode 38 on this this show, right when it was popping up on our radar. Mm -hmm. This strange kind of trend, it's – Less of a formal movement and mm-hmm. more of a trend that you'll find uh, amongst a lot of homeschooling families, especially mm-hmm. in the Christian evangelical world. And uh the the ideas are they, they of course, shun birth control, yep. any kind of contraception. Uh, they really – they they decide that God is the natural form of birth control. And when he wants you to stop getting pregnant, he'll make you stop getting pregnant. But it, it's even more sinister than that. Mm-hmm. The goal is – to raise up children as religious warriors in a culture war, the idea of the quiverful—each yeah. child you have is another, is is more ammunition in this war to create a godly
1: world. Turns out the Mormons and the Catholics don't hold a monopoly on this kind of thinking.
0: If they can't win the culture war, you know, politically or intellectually or culturally, right? They're going to try to breed us out. Mm-hmm. So, Vicky Garrison saw this movement and what it's about from the inside. She accepted many of these beliefs. She even wrote a newspaper where she advocated for quiverful doctrines. Uh, but eventually, it began to run a both a physical and psychological toll on her and her family, and she broke out. We're going to be sharing a lecture from her today where she talks about that process. Now, I do want to say one thing for the sake of our listeners. Uh, unfortunately, the audio of this lecture is less than ideal. It was recorded from an onboard mic on a camera. Mm-hmm. It, it is occasionally you will get a crowd noise. It's, it's not the perfect quality that you've come to expect listening to Reasonable Doubts here. But to me, the message of what she was saying was so important that I, I couldn't
1: really pass it up. Certainly listenable. You can hear it. You can understand right. it. It's just not of the, the quality that we strive for. So here's Vicki Garrison.
2: Thank you for having me here. I am so jealous of this community, this group. Um, I experienced when I was in um, Washington, D.C. recently, they had drinking skeptically. I was like, what is that? Like, I really doubt there's that much rum in this (laughs) Coke. So first of all, I want to kind of introduce Cliverful. It's not a a denomination. It's not a set of doctrines. I like to describe Cloverful as it's more a mindset than anything. And it affects every aspect of your life. They're homeschooling and they're home birthing and they're home churching. And, um, you know, I used to call myself homeier than now. (laughs) But it was very incremental. It was just one step and then that led to the next and that led to the next. But it didn't happen all at once. What happened was I... Started homeschooling. I went, I went to a homeschool convention, Christian homeschool convention, and that I like to call fertile ground <laughs> for the uh, proliferation of this family lifestyle that they're basically marketing. If you go to a Christian homeschool convention, you might have a workshop where they'll tell you how you can teach um, advanced math, and there'll be a couple parents trying to learn that. But the workshops where the parents are taking notes have titles like, How a Woman Can Use Reverence to Build and Save Her Marriage. Why Satan wants your firstborn? Uh, (laughs) They bring in speakers from Homeschool Legal Defense Association and Vision Forum. And, you know, basically teaching is this patriarchy and this quiverful idea and it's very dominionist, very much, um, you know, we are going to take back the Christ, and the way we're going to do that is simply by outpopulating the unbelievers. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, in the, that verse, Psalm 127, it says, Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. And then it goes on, it says, He shall not be ashamed, but he will speak with the enemy in the gates. And we were told that the gates of the city—that's where all of the civil matters were decided. That was where, you know, the the rulers and the leaders, the desires of policy, they met at the gates. And so, the whole point of having this quiver full of children, of of you know, is to train them up to be leaders and to put them into um, prominent places in government, education, media, entertainment. You know, you've got those seven mountains that they talk about of influence. And they're trying to train up these children to go in and basically um, infuse those arenas with biblical Christian principles. What happened with us, when, when I first got married, even before we got married actually, um, I already had my, my oldest daughter, I had her before. Um, Brought her into the relationship And My husband Ex-husband now Warren He was Really good with kids And That was You know Wonderful He was blind Still is blind Um, (laughs) I I don't want to make it sound like He like Got cured Or is dead He's around (laughs) And So So we started, you know, figuring out how we were going to do this whole relationship thing. And what made sense to us, because at that time I was going to college, I was getting, you know, I had 4.0 GPA, I loved studying, I loved all of the, the college life, it was awesome. And I was working, and I, I enjoyed that. Um, Warren was on disability And he really didn't have a way of making an income, but he really liked the kids. And so, you know, we just, it made sense to us that he would stay at home, take care of the kids, take care of the house. I mean, he loves to do laundry, so I was going to let him. (laughs) I was going to go out and, you know, get my degree and do something big and, and support us. And that, you know, for us was, Going to make, you know, it was going to be the most suitable way of having a relationship and having our family. But then we started hearing this stuff. We went, we we went from the Salvation Army, went to a fundamental Baptist church. And I remember the pastor talking about biblical rules for husbands and wives, biblical family values. God's plan for families. And the basic story is that God made man to be the head. And the woman is to be the helpmeet. And the man is to be the provider and the protector. And the woman is to support him in whatever calling God has for his life. And... So hearing that over time, we started to feel like, wow, I wonder what God thinks about what we're doing here, <laughs> because it's not quite lining up. And, and it, it was a gradual thing, but eventually I got convicted, and I felt like, you know, I am abandoning my kids, and I'm off doing my thing, and, and uh, you know, that's not supposed to be my role, that's not what really, what God has called me to and so I felt that I needed to come home. And I quit college and quit my job, came home, um, and, and I was going to be a help meet. Which, and uh, our, our personalities really didn't fit for that either because Warren's not that much of a leader. He was, he was fine with letting me make the decisions. And I was fine with making them. <laughs> but we learned that that was just not right. That was not God's way. And so we had to start conforming to this model of biblical manhood and womanhood. And that meant that he needed to be the leader, and I needed to be the support. Um, And we started, because... He didn't really have a way of making an income and you know, we had by that time developed you know got this conviction that we had to leave our family planning up to God, which meant no birth control. So we're having all these babies and like we need a way to support them. And so I started a Christian family newspaper. And uh, which was like I don't know if any of you read folks on Family Magazine, it was kinda like that. I know you don't read it, but if you ever did. If you ever did, it, it was very much like that. It was very political. It was very, you know, we call ourselves pro-life, radically pro-life, because not only did we support the idea that, um, you know, a personhood and and uh, right to life, all of that stuff, but we went a step farther. We said, how can the church expect to have any authority or speak with any kind of moral integrity, um, about abortion, if we are accepting that same mindset that children should come at our convenience, that children should, um, you know, be planned. Um, and so, you know, we were saying if you really trust in God, if you really believe that, that God is the author of and creator of life, that He is in control, you know, of eternal decisions, whether a, a Human is going to come into existence, then you just need to leave that in His hands and trust Him. So we were trusting the Lord with our family planning, and and we were supporting that lifestyle by basically selling it to others. Um, and so we were promoting it through our newspaper. And in the place where we live, in northwest Nebraska, is fairly conservative. It's actually very conservative, and so. Our paper went over really well. We were able to support our family um, fairly comfortably off of that income. Um, so the relationship. <laughs> what what happens with patriarchy is when you when you have this total imbalance of power, this total. Um, you know, the dominance and the submission in a relationship, what happens is the person who is the head, you know, and, and they kind of suck you into that with his promise because the Bible says in Ephesians 5 somewhere, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I call that the peanut butter and the patriarchy trap. Because that's what that's what draws the women into it. And you know, we were talking at dinner and I said that quiverful is basically a woman's movement in my experience and especially since I started the website no longer quivering and have been in contact and in communication with others who have been in it and are now getting out and that happens. It's kinda of cool. We're finding that it, it generally is the woman who is bringing these teachings in and kind of pushing them on the man. And you think, why? Well, it's that whole "husbands love your wife" thing. They they talk. They make it sound like you know you're going to get the servant leader. You're going to get you know somebody who loves you like Christ loved the church and is willing to give his life. You know. And so when you, when you have that kind of ideal in your mind of what kind of husband you're going to get, then you're willing to pay the price. And the price that you're going to pay is submission and obedience. And it's kind, it's really a kind of a twisted thing. And I didn't realize it until much later after I got out. I, I might actually just read this part to you because I think I wrote it better than I can say it. So I feel bear with me here. Well, when I finally recognized the insidious nature of the headship and submission scheme, here's how I described it. The very first thing that I had to learn as a Christian wife was submission. I needed to honor and obey my husband. And I had to be such a devout, godly woman that my husband couldn't find any fault in me. And in that way, I could win him without a word. This is, you know, right out of the Bible. Um, and the The Bible study ladies who were teaching me this submission, they reminded me that it's actually God's job to get my husband saved, to get him to be this servant leader that I was promised. Um, But they assured me that I could do my part by following their advice and being a loving, respectful wife. What I took away from that meeting was this. All I had to do was be the perfect wife and the perfect Christian, and God would honor that and give me this wonderful, godly marriage. And and it might seem obvious that it, you know you can be perfect, but it wasn't really that obvious to me. It just seemed it seemed doable. <laughs> the things that I, you know? um, I, I had a lot of confidence in I was young, and I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. Um, but but what I what I thought, you know, was that if I carry this out, this good, you know, my part, I could be a good Proverbs 31 wife if I could be that, you know, submissive help meet, that when I did, then God would have no choice but to just come in there and make a really awesome husband out of it Which is really kind of twisted. It's like when you're in a when you talk with with uh, people who counsel couples who are in a dysfunctional relationship, a codependent relationship, and you know they're they're always going to say you can't change him. This you know you cannot change him. All you can do is focus on yourself, and that is very true. But when you get God mixed into the equation, well then yeah, I'm focusing on myself, but you got this kind of loophole where what you're actually doing is you're like obligating God. So yeah, I don't have to control him because the guy who really can control him, you know, has to honor and you know my obedience. He has to come through for me, and, and so it's very much manipulate, manip, manipulative. I can talk. <laughs> Uh, It's a very twisted relationship, and what it does is it just gradually, and I have seen this happen in every patriarchal relationship that I have witnessed up close, that the man, the more that he is submitted to, the more that he is kind of catered to and given this special place of authority and responsibility within the, the home it's like he starts to resemble more and more the Old Testament God of the patriarchs. You know, that crazy, capricious dude who just wants to smite everyone. And that's, what, that's what the husband starts looking like. And, and the wife, she's looking more and more like Jesus, like that lamb that's going to slaughter and won't even open up her mouth, though he slaying me. That was my life verse from the book of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So what you've got is you, the husband is becoming more and more narcissistic. He's becoming more and more, you know, just feeling superior, feeling this power. And the wife is becoming more and more of a martyr. And self-abnegation and just, you know, to our website, no longer quivering if you go there everyone says it drives us crazy because the first thing they notice is we misspelled quivering. We spell it Q-I-V-E-R-I-N-G. And then our subtitle is there is no you in quivering. And that's because over over the years, you know, you hear the Duggars, they're always talking about joy. The way you have joy is Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Well, you know, that's the mindset that you just have to die to yourself you have to you know completely greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for a friend so this is your expression of love in Quiverful in the patriarchy paradigm is that the wife completely subsumes herself for the good of her family and for her husband and to promote and it's all for God you know we're all doing it for God but it's it's a humongous head trip. It's amazing the manipulation that is involved there and the dysfunction. So what ends up happening is everybody hates themselves, each other, <laughs> everybody but God, because you know it's not His fault. Obviously, if this isn't working, it's because we're not doing it right. We're not trying hard enough. We're not. Praying enough, we're not being submissive enough. You know, we we haven't found just the right scripture, and so then you buy another book from Vision Forum to help you understand where it is that this isn't going right. Um, so yeah, it it got to the point, and I see this over and over with these families that it, it ruins it ruins the man, it ruins the women. You know, you would think that a setup where the man is being totally catered to, that that would be, like, you know, cool. But no, it, it infantilizes the man. It's, it's funny because Christianity, they're always talking about love and respect. The women need love, man needs respect. But as soon as you adopt that patriarchy model of relating, where you are submitting indiscriminately to another person, there's no respect involved in that. I mean, real respect will say, hey, you know, you're screwing up here. And and that is respecting a person enough to say, take some responsibility. You know, here's reality. But that was not something that, I mean, it just didn't occur to us. We were so heavily involved in this mindset that everything was just completely twisted around. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, I considered myself a fairly intelligent person. I thought, I'm, you know, my critical thinking skills were pretty decent. Not, I wasn't stupid. But, um, but I was told, you know, almost from the beginning, almost the first thing I, I found out from the Bible and from Christianity about myself was that as a human being, there's something wrong. You know, I I was born with this sin nature, and I have this flesh that is trying to take me away from God, that's rebelling against God, and that is, you know, leading me down worldly ways and Satan's path. And, and, you know, so I I had that idea about myself. You know, I used to say, my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I said, you know, this is what I was taught, that the person that the heart most wants to deceive is me. And so whenever something made sense to me, I had to think, well, that can't be God. And because I was a woman... Was taught that I was inherently more susceptible to deception by Satan. It's a verse. Paul said it, and I don't know the the chapter and verse, so. Yay. I won't quote it for you. That's part of my therapy. I'm just losing this stuff. (laughs) Um, But so it, it, it got to the point over the years where. I had such a, a doubt about my own, you know, I just could not trust. If something made sense to me, if something seemed like this is a really sensible, common sense idea, and if it, especially if it was something that I actually wanted to do, that could not, could not be right. That had to be... Like, so I would have to basically, you know, figure out the opposite and do that. Because obviously whatever seemed right to me, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end there of lead to destruction. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it was all King James. <laughs> so, so that was, it, it really brought me to that point where I just, it was like a counter indicator. If something, would, if something seemed like a good idea to me, obviously... We needed to do the opposite, and so we just got farther and farther this this huge disconnect from reality. Like we're building this little fantasy world all up here in our heads, but reality, like, didn't go away. <laughs> and the reality was that, you know, the pregnancies were killing me. I actually had. Stopped having, like, my, after my third, I have some health issues that made it very, very difficult for me and it actually life-threatening. And after my third, you know, we were advised not to do that anymore. <laughs> it's like, no, this is not a good idea. And so Warren had gone and had a vasectomy. This was before we encountered Quiverful. We did the sensible thing that, you know, just... obvious to us and we said, that's it. You know, we've got three, that's plenty. That's actually more than plenty. (laughs) Um, But then we got into Quiverful. I read Nancy Campbell's book um, God's Vision for Families and Mary Pride has a book called The Way Home, Beyond Feminism and Back to Reality. (laughs) And, And in these books they talk about you know, just giving your reproductive life over to God, and so the more that we got involved with other people who had accepted that mindset and who were living this cloverful lifestyle, um, we felt convicted that we needed to put our reproductive life back into God's hands, and so then we went and had a reversal, and I had four more children and <laughs> uh, blessings. We always call them blessings. And my last, and every time it was it was extremely difficult. And three of our children inherited my the bone condition that I have that causes my health problems. And because of that, we were constantly taking them up for um, checkups in Minneapolis. And between the three of them, they've had about 25 surgeries. One time, all three of them at the same time. Um, <laughs> and so that was just, you know, consuming a lot of our life. Just trying to bring in enough income to support this and, and something that, you know, a lot of people, they'll hear about the Duggars or they hear about these clerical families who are having all of these babies. And they're like, you know, well, they're just a drain on the welfare system. But the thing is, the clerical families generally will not... Accept any kind of um, public assistance because it would be a bad witness, and because they are very Republican, they're very anti—you know—socialism. <laughs> so, um, so you know, we're having to do all that with no help from food stamps or even Medicaid. I mean, we didn't have health care, and you know, thankfully there was the Shriners, which was a you know they do orthopedic things, and, and it was all free for my, my children. Otherwise, I don't know what we would have done for their health care. And that is where we really failed, was with the homeschooling, because you just can't do it all. It's, a, it's an impossible lifestyle. It's unsustainable to try and live such a demanding life. And so, um, you know, it just got to the point, my, with my last pregnancy, um, I actually had a, a partial uterine rupture during the delivery, had to have a C-section delivery. And I, we had this Catholic doctor who we had chosen specifically because of his pro-life views. And so um, he took a lot of time to stitch me all back together and put it all, you know, and he left my uterus. And then he told us not to have any more. <laughs> and I was like, well, um, you know, if, if God really didn't want me to have any more children, then he would have just took my uterus. I would have had a full uterine rupture, and I wouldn't have a uterus, but it's still there. And I was so into that mindset that I got pregnant two more times. And, and I miscarried um, early with both times, and I was like, because you know, I didn't know how I was going to deal with that. You know, the last one just nearly killed me, nearly killed the baby. And I'm thinking, how are we going to, you know, what's my husband going to do? He's blind. He's got seven kids. Um, You know, it was just crazy. And I, I got to the point where I just broke down. I mean, mentally, physically, emotionally, it was all just so overwhelmingly difficult. It was impossible. The life that we had, you know, and like I said, it was all incremental. It was all gradual. You know, we didn't start out with this hugely overwhelming life, but it just got to that point, and I started seeing that this was not not good for my kids either. You know, they were not thriving. They were very oppressed. They were very, you know, because everything was so regimented, and. We had taken this whole sheltering children thing to to such a severe, you know, they didn't have any friends. They weren't allowed, you know, they weren't going to public school. They couldn't even go to um, Sunday school because there were public school kids in the Sunday school. (laughs) (laughs) They couldn't play with the neighbor kids. (laughs) And so basically the only people that they were allowed to associate was either, you know, our adult friends or the children of, the families that we were home churching with, we got to the point where our Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, we felt they were too compromising. <laughs> we felt they were <laughs> way too liberal, and um, and so we we started home churching, and um, it was very insular. It just became to the point where we isolated ourselves, we isolated our own children, and and they were really struggling with it, and um, and during that. Time where everything was just completely overwhelming. I'm just scrambling up here <laughs> trying to figure out why is this is not working. Because I am doing everything to, I mean way beyond the Call of Duty. I have gone to the point, you know, of death. I I was at that point where I was willing to, I was risking my life to be obedient to this ideal that I felt that God had called me to. And yet, you know, I, and it's not like I, I wanted everything to be perfect, but I could at least not be such a total bitch all the time. You know? And uh, and so I'm just, you know, trying to figure this out. And it was during that time that I encountered, uh, I met my uncle, who I had never known. My my mom and dad had separated before I was old enough to remember him, and and then I found him when I was like thirty-seven on the internet, and uh, called him up because of patriarchy, because the fifth commandment says honor your parents, honor your father and your mother, and I thought if I was going to honor my father, you know, I need to get a hold of him and share the gospel with him. <laughs> yeah, so I called him up. <laughs> And it turns out he was already a Christian and fairly fundamentalist. Um, he had been married to this woman for 30 years and raised her kids. And um, and so he heard about our family, and he was happy. He was like, wow, you know, I'm so glad to hear that you're walking in the Lord, and you have this beautiful family. We're publishing this, you know, pro-family Christian newspaper. We were fairly well-known you know, in the state of Nebraska, we were, in 2002, 2003, we were honored as the Nebraska Family of the Year by the Nebraska Family Council, which is associated with Family Research Council focused on the family. Um, <laughs> and the reason that we were awarded that is because of our work in helping to get DOMA passed in Nebraska, oh. so, <laughs> yeah, so that was us. <laughs> and my dad was proud <laughs> he's like wow you know, this is wonderful, I'm so glad you got in contact with me, and about three years later um, I got a chance to meet the rest of his family he had three brothers, a sister and a mom that all lived in northern Arkansas, and before I went there I was warned they said don't, you know, be careful about your Uncle Ron because he's not a believer, he's kind of tricky, and he will try to confuse you. Oh, I was so insulted. I was like, you know, I am the most committed Christian I know. I am so devoted. I know my Bible. I I studied apologetics. I got this figured out. My faith is so strong. God is so real to me. There is no way that, you know, I'm going to have the least doubt. If anything, he's the one who needs to look out. I just couldn't believe it. It they didn't have any confidence in me. And so, so when I met my uncle, I really liked him. It's just like this instant clicking, you know, how you meet somebody and it's like, wow, this is an awesome person. And we talked for quite a while while I was there. And then by the time I got back from that vacation, I had an email from him and he said, I was really impressed with your family. I can see that you are very intentional, that you're very, you know, deliberate about your way of life, that you are trying to, you know, be countercultural and not to just go with the flow. And, you know, I think that's that's something that's very noble. And I I you know, wonder if you'd like to get to know me better. You know, he says, Would you be willing to, you know, exchange an email or two? And <laughs> Yeah, and I wrote back I was like cool <laughs> sure and I like one of the first emails I was like but you know the bottom line for me is always going to be Jesus <laughs> and not some abstract use, but you know God is revealed in history through Jesus Christ etc <laughs> but it became a obsession, and over not quite a year's time we exchanged like almost a thousand emails it just Was it was this opportunity because in Quiverful, as a woman, you don't really get a chance to talk about the the big ideas. Um, When we would do our home church, you know, afterwards we'd have our fellowship meal, and then the guys would go out into the living room and they'd be discussing doctrine and theology and church, you know, matters. And women would go into the kitchen, and we'd be talking about homeschooling and child training. And I mean, that's all—that was all interesting. I was into it, but like one ear is always like trying to figure out what are they saying out there. You know, I wanted to know what they were talking about, but she just didn't talk about that because—and especially—you didn't talk to a man about anything. It just didn't happen. But because he's my uncle. I was allowed. I could talk to him. And never mind that he was basically a random stranger that I didn't even, you know, we shared this DNA but didn't know each other at all. But I, I was able to correspond. And it gave me a chance to start rethinking, you know, sorting out. I knew something wasn't right, I knew there was something that I wasn't getting. And I, you know, I always say when I became a Christian, it's not that I shut my brain off. I never stopped thinking. I just confined my thinking to what was biblical, what was um, orthodox, and within that little box, I could just, you know, do all the thinking I want, question, and you know. Use my powers of logic, etc. But it had to be biblical. And so I'm trying to explain to my uncle, because he's very interested. You know, why are you homeschooling? Why are you having all these kids, etc.? This isn't what people do these days, you know. Um, And I'm trying to explain it to him, but I'm thinking, okay, how's this going to sound to somebody who doesn't accept all these premises like the Bible is? the inerrant word of God without sounding completely nuts. (laughs) It was a challenge. (laughs) And and the more that I did it, the more I started to, you know, just allow myself to look at at what I believe and what I was basing my life on from that perspective of what what if this stuff isn't true, then how can you justify all of this? And I realized that you can't. It is crazy. It is unrealistic. And and there came a point in our correspondence where I, I just realized that I did not believe enough about Christianity. I, I stopped believing that the Bible was the Word of God. I started seeing it as just like this old book <laughs> that really didn't have anything to do with our lives these days. And and I, I you know, didn't believe in Jesus anymore. And yeah, when I realized that, I was like, I just don't think I believe enough about this to be able to call myself a Christian. And yet I had this extremely Christian-based life, you know, our, our income, our, everything. <laughs> we, and we had so, you know, narrowed our, our lives to the point that we didn't even know anyone who wasn't Christian, who wasn't fundamentalist, quiverful Christian, you know. And so I'm just like, now what? I scrambled for a while trying to figure out what of this I could hold on to, what if it I could salvage and say, well, you know, at least this much I still believe. But once that foundation was gone, because this fundamentalism, you know, it all, it all kind of hinges on it. It all kind of works together. And so, once you get rid of that foundation, if the Bible is not the Word of God, then everything that you built on that—it it just kind of goes too. You know, it's kind of all evaporated for me. But yeah, I came to that point where I just realized that I didn't believe it anymore, and uh, everything changed.
0: So that's Vicki's story. Next week on the show, we're going to have a short interview with Vicki where we get to hear kind of the story afterwards. It's kind of a follow up. What happened after she left the Quiverful movement? What were some of the challenges then? And what is she doing now to reach out to women like her who are still stuck in these patriarchal families? Let's turn now to
1: some polyatheism. the annals of history, we have a wide range of mythological mothers. From Hera, the once powerful earth goddess who was reduced to Zeus's nagging wife, to Frigg, prognosticating mother of the Norse, Hathor, cow-headed Egyptian goddess with abundant healing milk, and so on. But there's only one mother who became a crossover goddess and moved King Solomon the Wise to build a temple dedicated to her. Astarte, or Ashura, or, as she's called in the Bible, Ashtoreth. She started out as the top goddess of the Phoenicians and Canaanites before hitting it big across the Middle East and northern Africa and beyond. She was the wife of the Canaanite god El, whom we've discussed in a previous polyatheism, and she was known as the mother of the gods, having a quiver full of 70 or so children thought 13 was rough. Right? Uh, her name, in fact, is often translated as womb or that which issues from the womb. Uh, to make matters more complicated, she may actually have been both of El's wives, Astarte, the light side, and Anat, the darker aspects of the same goddess. These two, two, two goddesses in one gave birth to both dawn and dusk as well as, you know – 68 or so others. Considering her popularity and importance amongst the Canaanites, it is perhaps not surprising to find that she merits a mention or nine in the Hebrew Bible. Of course, in the Bible, she goes by the name Ashtoreth, which may in fact be an attempt by the ancient Hebrews at name-calling. What they've done is mash up the name of Ashura or Astarte with the Hebrew word Doroth meaning shame. So, you know, it's shame goddess is essentially what they're calling her. Uh, they also frequently use Ashtoreths as a general term for all those damned pagan goddesses. Usually the context is something along the lines of, we have sinned by worshiping Baal and the Ashtoreths, or stop sinning by worshiping Baal and the Ashtoreths. But thanks in part to Solomon's many pagan wives – and also probably to the fact that Astarte's husband, El, is a regional variation on the Jewish god Elohim, Solomon himself commissions the building of a temple dedicated to the Ashtoreth, which eventually makes her as notorious as the golden calf of the Ten Commandments story. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Can Can I jump in here yeah, with, a, with a not funny biblical Please. reference?
0: This is part of the case for those who claim that uh, monotheism came pretty late in Judaism. Absolutely. Because Solomon just doesn't seem to think that there's any problem with this. No. And we have other references to uh, an Israeli colony in in Egypt at the time where the women would go out and make cakes to the queen of heaven who mm-hmm. was this, this Asherah. And, um uh, it, it, it's henotheism
1: is, is what we're seeing at play. Right, right. What we might yeah.
0: be looking at is a later where the monotheists, those who exclusively worshipped Yahweh, were really embarrassed that uh, their god was associated with this female
1: consort mm-hmm. and also some of the nasty practices that happened around her and his worship. Right. Uh, not many goddesses can claim responsibility for as much bad news for the Israelites as Astarte can. And only one can make a case for being the wife of capital G God, which may be why, in fact, by the time the Bible was being written, they were so sure to talk about how bad it was to worship her. Because, of course, by the time they're writing the Bible, they're trying to distance themselves from their Babylonian captors. They're trying to say, we're not like you. We don't worship these other gods. Therefore, it's it's a little bit of uh, of – um, retroactive history. They're trying to change um, yeah. the actual practices.
0: Right that the, before they went into uh, into exile for the Babylonians, some priests discover a long-lost scroll and go to King Josiah and say, hey, look, turns out we shouldn't have been whoring ourselves
1: out to these gods all this time. Right. Right. So yeah. Even uh, though for many, many years they had, it yeah. was widespread. They, but uh, Solomon wasn't the only one taken by Astarte's feminine wiles. Uh, the ancient Egyptians also took her in. In one great though fragmentary tale of ancient Egypt, the gods cannot manage to satisfy the sea with their tributes. So they sent Astarte to make additional offerings and when she got there – Uh, this mother with a mouth rather than paying tribute started insulting the sea Ooh, you think you're so big and wet well you're all washed up fish pee in you i don't know how you insult the sea but astarte did uh so then of course the sea demands that she be sacrificed to him The gods dressed her up in jewels and sent Seth, the Egyptian god of storms and violence, to accompany her. And then just as the sea was about to swallow her up, we don't know. Like I said, it's fragmentary. We don't have the end of this story. I love aborted myths. I know, right? Uh, Presumably either Astarte or Seth saved her from the sea, I, I don't know, with a towel or water wings or something like that. Uh, at any rate, through Egypt, Israel, Cana, and beyond, Astarte was one badass mother. She was often depicted as a naked woman riding a horse and clutching multiple weapons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Her temple included active prostitution as well, another reason why the Israelites kind of distanced themselves from her worship <laughs> later on. Uh, she's got 70 kids to support and her husband is away most of the time. So, you know, there weren't a lot of job options. Quit being judgy. You know, sure, a woman's got to do what a woman's got to do. So there you have it. Astarte, tough talking, no nonsense, Canaanite, mother of the gods, and just one more goddess worth not believing in. Well, let's, uh, let's finish off here with a stranger than fiction. Mustache elicits Taliban death threats.
0: They're declaring a jihad on funky <laughs> mustaches. Uh, Don't these guys have something better to jihad against?
1: Yeah, you, you would think. Um, this is this article is actually a, a, a while back and we just couldn't fit it into the show earlier. So I'm very happy that we're finally getting it's to it. It's back from <laughs>
0: August. But yeah uh, – and really you need to go to doubtcast.com to get the link to this article so you can see this man's mustache. It
1: is it's but, worth jihading over, uh, I would yeah.
0: say. It's it's kind of it reminds me a bit of Wario. Yes. Uh, it does. Only like on an even more epic scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's glorious. I think the tips of that mustache are going clear past the guy's head. Yep.
1: Uh the the man behind the mustache is uh Malik Afridi. And uh he was actually kidnapped by the Taliban yeah. because his facial hair was deemed to be un-Islamic. <laughs> he was kidnapped and the interesting thing to me is they didn't shave him. They just forced him to shave and he refused to for – a long time, yeah, ready? and and they they were willing to let him go if he would if pay he them a bribe. Actually, yeah, that's, first. Right. They, that's they, right.
0: They were like, all right, if you want to have this un-Islamic mustache, you got to give us five hundred bucks. Five hundred bucks. I'm like, screw that! This guy drops hundred and fifty a month just on oils and creams and everything to keep this thing groomed. So actually, he's saving money if he if he shaves it. Yeah. Well, oh mean, yeah. Actually, yeah. You know, the Taliban's cutting him a deal, but it here. costs quite a bit, and that's that's a yeah. bit of a surcharge. Yeah. You, you know, to tack a five hundred. Dollar uh, fee on top of that. Yeah, so they so kidnap the him. They pay say, that.
1: "Pay us five hundred dollars, and you can keep your mustache. Otherwise, we're not letting you go until you shave." Finally, he did shave after being held for for a month. He held out for a month for before a month. shaving that thing. And they, I mean. Why didn't they just hold him down and shave? I mean, the frickin' Amish right. are doing that. Right. The, the Taliban couldn't just, you know, grab a pair of scissors. It's a matter
0: of principle. They're not uh, getting near that un-Islamic mustache.
1: But, uh, as this article says, and this is from, um, what is this from? Salon.com, uh, this 48-year-old businessman, um, after, uh, he was let go after they shaved him, quote, last year, Alfredi, unafraid, grew it back spending up to 30 minutes a day waxing and combing and fortifying his facial furniture, and the death threats began again. To keep his wife and 10 children, he's got a quiver full here, Mm -hmm. safe, he left his hometown and family behind and once again took to the road. He now sees them only rarely. But every once in a while,
0: if you look east, you can see him walking those two – Brilliant spires of black facial hair hanging above his head. Yeah, I love this other quote. He says, you know, a man of principle here, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: quote, I can leave my family. I can leave Pakistan, but I can never cut my mustache again.
1: No, I I have to say, I have five children and there are days – when I would, I would, I would take any excuse to be like, oh, no, look, the Taliban is, can't uh, I gotta stand go, my mustache. I, I, I gotta go, honey, uh, this is, this is for your safety, I gotta go, so I understand. Mohammed can't handle these glorious handlebars. <laughs> I, I understand where he's coming from, but, um, To truly give up your family for the sake of your facial hair, I can, I can leave my family, I can leave Pakistan, but I can never cut my mustache
0: again. Well, you haven't spent much time with his family. We, we don't have all the facts here. And there's ten of them. I'm saying this is a man of principle. In fact, he talks about it like you know, like this is the one thing that that you know he gets to do. Mm-hmm. He, he says, uh, "I don't like smoking. I'm not fond of snuff or drinking, and this is the only choice in my life. I'd even sacrifice food, but not the mustache. It's my life. It's not part of my life. It's my life." So
1: he, sound, people identify with some weird things about themselves, and this guy's gone with the mustache. He sounds like professional beardsman Jack Passion. Whisker Wars is one of my favorite shows. Um, and, and, by the way, I would never hold anyone captive or, or threaten them because of their facial hair unless they had a whaler. The whaler is the worst facial hair on the planet and, and deserves to have a jihad declared against them. Well, some hipster's probably gonna... Do, do you know what a whaler it? is? No, I don't. It is, it's that beard that starts under the chin. Oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. where it 's just the yeah. the under the chin beard it 's no. an Alaskan style, and that one I believe is worth the jihad yeah kind of – could grow a
0: good whaler if I wanted to, but uh that just sounds to me like
1: and uncomfortable that 's the itchiest yeah, beard. that's the horrible, hell? yeah, so uh yeah, so Malik um still with that glorious, glorious mustache, and uh. <laughs> stopping by to see his kids what couple of times a year. So uh, he's living the dream. They can see it if you watch the horizon, <laughs> you know you'll notice the tips of his mustache first. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's gonna do it for us this time. We will be back soon in the meantime. you can email your questions, comments, challenges, etc to doubtcast at gmail.com. check out our YouTube uh, and Twitter at slash doubtcast. And of course, doubtcast.org for our blog where you can comment on the episodes and sometimes get into lively debates about such. Um, But we will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion.